Take your Bible, 2 John, little epistle right near the end of the Bible, 2 John, and this morning we're going to finish our preaching through 2 John, and the last message is from the last verse, 2 John, and verse number 13, quite honestly, last week I preached on verse 12, and uh, I thought, well, I'll just include verse 13 in it because I have no idea what to do with verse 13. So we'll just kind of get it in there just so we can see it's done. And it was like the Spirit of God said, no, that's a completely different message, verse 13. And I thought, okay. And so as I was proceeding through this week, I'm sure I read that verse 50 times. I thought, Lord, there is no message in that verse. So how about we just start another book? And the Lord said, no, that's the one, that's the one. It didn't come till about Thursday morning at about 3 in the morning. So what we're doing at 3 in the morning? I was having a powder room break, and uh, it came. And so I'm excited about preaching this. I trust that will help. Let's read together, if we could, Second John, verse 13, reading that together, reading it out loud, verse 13. The children of thy elect sister greet thee, Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for each one that's come this morning. Thankful for how you've helped us this last week, how you've directed, how you've provided, how you've encouraged. And Father, I pray you'd help us now as we look into this verse. Quite honestly, I would never pick it for a text of a message, but preaching through a book, you kind of pick it for us. Help us this morning to make sense of what it is that John was writing here. May this be a very practical help. Direct my words, fill me with your spirit. May you have a great work in each heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the number of weeks ago, we began to look at this little epistle of Second John. We know that it was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote five books. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And we know he wrote all of those books near the end of his life. He was probably 70 years, 80 years old at the time that he wrote them. This particular letter was just one chapter long, 13 verses long. And I've said it before, but the theme of 2nd John is a warning against false teachers. And it's kind of a strange way that John would get to that. The very first week we looked at who this letter was written to. It was written to an unnamed lady. She was a Christian woman, she loved the Lord, and uh, she was loved, and uh, she accepted correction. We saw that the first week, the second, third, and fourth week, John commended her for a Christian walk and for her love for the truth and for her love for people. But by the time we got to the fifth message, we actually got to the theme of 2 John, and that was a warning against false teachers. John knew that in that first century, not only were there missionaries and evangelists and preachers that were proclaiming the truth, but there were also false teachers. There were false prophets. And they too were going door to door, knocking on doors and talking to people. And this particular Christian woman, we learn that she was a woman of great hospitality. She would open her home up to anybody and everybody that needed help. Whether it was for a meal, whether it was for a talk, whether it was for a stay overnight, she would open up her home to anybody. And John learned that in her hospitality, she was actually opening up her home to some of these false teachers. And so we looked at that fifth week at the fact that she's not to do that. In fact, look there, if you would, in uh, verse number 10. John says, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine. He had taught her the way to flush out a false teacher is usually in their doctrine of Christ. What do they believe about Jesus Christ? And that would still be the test today. 
JWs and Mormons do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus was God in the flesh when he walked this earth, as no one else could be. They do not believe that. Now, they'll skirt around the questions if you try to nail their feet to the floor. John said, if somebody does not bring the doctrine that Jesus is God, Look what he says there in verse number 10. Uh, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. Don't let them in. Now, I know that we have some here that you just like to contend for the faith and, and argue for God's sake. Go for it outside your house. John said, don't bring them into your home he said, because you are exposing your home and those that are in your home to a false teaching and likely a false spirit that's been invited in. First of all, he says, don't bring them into your house. Look at the very end of verse number 10. Neither bid him Godspeed. Don't you dare say have a good day. Don't you dare say God bless you. Don't you dare say, may God encourage you in the work that you do. That's what we saw in week number five. Week number six, we saw what happens if you ignore that warning. John said there were two things that happened. He said, ma'am, I know that you're hospitable, but if you ignore this warning and invite them in and feed them a meal and give them a bed to sleep in, and encourage them two things. First of all, look verse 11. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is, a part, is partaker of his evil deeds. God holds you partly accountable for the evil that they're doing. Secondly, look there in verse 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Not only does God hold you and I partly accountable for their evil deeds if we help them, but God says rewards that we have waiting in heaven are in jeopardy of being lost. Last time, if you remember, I preached on enjoying the fullness of joy. Look there in verse 12. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink. But I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The Lord is not only interested in saving you and I from hell, but he's interested in giving us a life that is full of joy. And we found four keys that can gain us a fullness of joy. First of all, and we saw it last week, knowing confidently of your home in heaven. What a source of joy that is. Secondly, enjoying a close fellowship with him. Third way to have this fullness of joy is by continuing to obey his commandments. And the fourth way is by congregating with God's people. And that's really what John said. John said, I have so much more to this lady that I'd like to tell you. But he said, I want to wait till we're face to face. I want us to be able to look at each other and talk face-to-face -face each, with each other, for that is a source of fullness of joy. You can be a Christian and on your way to heaven and never go to a church that's true. But there is a joy that comes by gathering with God's people. You say, well, I know some of God's people that are hypocrites. Well, we know some people in the world that are hypocrites. It's not going to do you or I any better by being at Tim Hortons than it will be at the house of God. And so what's, what's happening in a lot of churches, and I'll get to today's message in a minute, what's happening with a lot of churches, they're canceling their Sunday night and canceling their Wednesday night. Why? Where could you be that would help you better spiritually than with God's people. Even if it's a message that you've heard before, the very fact that you are with God's people will give you a fullness of joy. Having said that, we come to this difficult verse. Look at verse 13. 
the children of thy elect sister greet thee, amen. Now, I've said already, <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that last Sunday. And it was like the Spirit of God said, you don't need to just preach on verse 12 last Sunday. But this week, and it's how I always do it, I start Monday by reading the next text of the next message. And Monday I read it and I thought, Lord, Tuesday, Lord, Wednesday. And you say, well, preacher, what do you do with that? Well, you know, there's a number of little blessings that are found in verse 13, and none of them are my message. But the first thing that I want you to see is uh, um, he, he says there that God seemed to open up something. First thing he says, and we know it from verse 1, that this little letter was written to an unnamed Christian lady. And here's how he said that. Look at verse 1. Verse number 1, the elder unto the elect lady. That word elect or election has been so twisted by the Calvinists today. They teach that election means that God in, the, in eternity past picked those that he would save and God picked the other ones that he wouldn't save. And they would say of 2 John verse number 1 that this unnamed Christian lady was a part of those that God picked before the foundations of the world that she would be saved. That's what they would say the elect lady means. That's not what it means at all. That word elect doesn't mean that God picked her. That word elect is she chose God. She saved. We could put this word saved. We know that this woman in verse 1 is a saved woman. See, Pastor, what does that have to do with verse 13? Look at verse 13, the children of thy elect sister. Do you know that the saved woman of verse 1 had a saved sister in verse 13? Do you know that not everybody can say that others in their family are saved? There are some people, they're the only ones that are saved in their household. They have had to take a stand alone for God, how difficult that sometimes is. But this woman in verse 1 had a sister who was all also saved. What a blessing that that is. Folks, if you have somebody else in your family that's saved, brothers and sisters that share the same faith, you're blessed. In fact, I think that there are some here who all of your brothers and sisters in your family are saved. You have been greatly blessed. Not only do we see the blessing of having somebody else in your home that is saved, uh, but we learn another thing. Look back there in verse number 1. The Bible says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children. And then look at verse number four, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. I'm, I'm just giving you a list of blessings that somehow verse 13 adds to it. Not only did this Christian woman of verse one have a Christian sister, that's a blessing. This Christian woman of verse one had children that were saved. And not only children that were saved, but children that were walking with God. Folks, that's a blessing. If you have children, if I have children, and those children, one, are saved, amen for that. Two, if they're saved and walking with God, double amen for that. And, and many, many here, your children are saved. Your children love the Lord. That's the second blessing. So the first thing about this Christian woman, she had a sister who was a Christian. Secondly, she had children who were Christians, and they were walking with God. I see a third blessing that is found in here. Uh, look again at verse number 13. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Not only did this woman of verse 1 have a sister who was saved, not only did this woman, verse 1, have children who were saved and walked with God, verse 4, 
But this Christian woman in verse 1 had a sister who was saved and her children walked with God. We call those nieces and nephews. If you have sisters and brothers whose children are saved and walk with God, what a blessing. Again, there are some people in this world, they are the only ones that are saved in their family. They, they, they can't have family prayer together because they're the only ones in their family that are saved. This woman not only had a sister was saved, but that sister's children were saved and had a walk with God. You say, Pastor, how do you get that they had a walk with God? Well, look again at verse 13. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Well, John at this time in his life was moving from church to church to church preaching. And somewhere in his travels... He met this Christian woman of verse 1 somewhere later in his travels, and likely John is at that place in verse 13. He's in another church. And in that other church, these are some younger Christians in that church that walk up to John and say, John, our mother has a sister who's in such a... John said, I preached there not long ago. And these younger nieces and nephews said, would you please send our greeting to our aunt the next time? They're in church. They're interested in spiritual things. Folks, lost people don't walk up to a preacher and to an evangelist. Say, the next time you see our aunt in such and such a city, say hello. Lost people don't do that. I'm saying that this Christian woman in verse 1 had a sister who was a Christian. That's a blessing. This woman in verse 1 had children herself who were saved and walked with God. Verse 4, that's a blessing. This woman in verse 1 had a sister whose children were saved and walked with God. That's a blessing. And they were interested in their aunt's well-being. Now you say, Pastor, you said none of this is where we're going this morning. Do you know the thrust of this whole second John? The, 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 the theme of it is a warning against false teachers. And John is writing to this woman in verse 1 who's a Christian who is so hospitable that uh, she is opening the door even to welcome false teachers. How did John know that? How did that come to John's attention? It couldn't have come to John's attention when he was in the church where this Christian woman was in verse 1. Or John would have dealt with that with her face to face. I would suggest you say, oh, preacher, I'm wrong. It's free country. You're welcome to say that. I would suggest to you when John left the church where that Christian woman was in verse 1, and he preached in another church and another church and another church, as he came to this church where her Christian sister and their children were part of that other church, I would suggest to you that the children of that saved sister, they heard about auntie's kindness, auntie's hospitality, and they heard that aunt was so hospitable that she was opening her home to false teachers, they got worried about what that could do to that aunt, how it could snare her, how it could trap her. And I would suggest to you that the children of this saved sister in their church began to pray. They said, Lord, what can we do to help our aunt 
who is fixing to get herself into big trouble. They began to pray. Until one day this apostle John comes to their church. Well, they've been praying that God would tell them how to help another Christian that was potentially in trouble. And as John began to preach in their church, these nephews and nieces looked at each other and said, this is how we can help our aunt. And I think they asked for a few minutes from John's time and said, uh, Brother John, we have an aunt who is in another church. And he said, I've been to that church. And he said, well, this aunt. And John said, I've met that woman. I am so impressed with that woman's Christian and her children. Well, John, we're nervous about something. What? What could you be nervous about a woman that's so faithful? And they said, she'll open her doors to anybody. Sooner or later, she's going to house a false prophet, a false teacher, who is going to bend her ear to false doctrine. And we are worried that she is going to become a casualty in the Christian faith. John, is there something you could do? Because she respects you. She will listen to you. And in answer to that request, John writes, 2 John. I would suggest to you that when it says in verse 13, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Notice it doesn't say thy sister greet thee. Maybe she'd already passed away. But the children of thy elect sister greet thee. I think that not only they said, Brother John, would you please say hello to our aunt the next time you're there? But Brother John, you've got to help us because we're worried that she could be in trouble. What do you do when you learn that another Christian is in trouble? What are we to do when we find of another Christian that's making some choices that could potentially take them down the wrong path? That's what I'm preaching this morning. If you're taking notes, my title for my message this morning is, How Can I Help Another Christian in Trouble? How can I help another Christian in trouble? Most of us that are saved this morning are aware of other Christians that are taking steps that potentially take them down the wrong path. Pastor, how can I help another Christian in trouble? I'd like to take you to several Christians that were in trouble and what their Christian friends did to help them. You can let go of 2 John, though we'll end up there. Look there, if you would, in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter number 22. Again, we're looking at how can I help another Christian in trouble? Luke chapter 22. Look there in verse 31. Luke 22, 31. The Lord said, Simon... Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. The very first Christian I'd have us look at that's in trouble is Simon Peter. You know that Simon Peter was one of the 12 apostles that God chose. In every list of those 12 apostles, Peter's name is always given first. What we're reading here in Luke chapter 22 this was the last night before our Lord was arrested, taken to that trial, nailed to that cross. This is the very last night in Luke chapter 22. We find that Jesus is gathered with his apostles there in that upper room. Look there in verse 8. Luke chapter 22 and verse 8. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Look there in verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire, have a desire to eat this passer with you before I suffer. As our Lord gathered with those around that table. Look at verse 21, what Jesus told them. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Our Lord told them two specific things at that meal. He said, one of you is going to betray me. 
Well, you can imagine the unrest that that raised as they began to look at each other and wonder which one would be the betrayer. Not only did our Lord tell them that, but our Lord also told them, and it's not in uh, Luke, it's in Matthew, but our Lord also told them that when he would be arrested, that all of the rest of those apostles would scatter. They would scatter for fear of their own lives. Do you know when Jesus said that to those apostles, Peter said, proudly, arrogantly, though all will flee, I never will. Can I say this? Never say never. Never say never. And yet he said, I never will. I think at that moment, there was an unseen person that we know as Satan, the adversary of God, who immediately took that trip up to the throne room of heaven and said before God, God, that's one of yours. And he's pretty proud and pretty arrogant to think that he could never deny the Lord. God, let me try him. That's what he means. Let me put him to the test to see if those are just cheap words that he has said or whether indeed he will stand true to the Savior. And I think that Jesus knew exactly what had just taken place when Peter said, I will never forsake thee. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, look again, Luke 22 and verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as we. Jesus knew exactly that when out of Peter's mouth, when he said, never, that the devil went up to God and said, let me try him. Folks, be careful when you say never. Be careful when you say, I would never, ever do that. I would never abandon my family. I would never betray the Lord. I would never deny that I was a Christian. I would never quit on God. I would never stop. Be careful when you say never, because you are at that moment opening up yourself to a challenge. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired that he may sift you as weed. Sifting is separating. And the devil's interested in separating you from God, from other Christians, from the house of God and the word of God. I think you'll agree that Peter is a Christian that's almost in trouble. Watch what Jesus does. Very next verse, Luke 22 and verse 32. But I have prayed for thee. You know the very first thing that you and I can do to help another Christian, if you're taking notes, the very first thing is pray for that. Pray for that. That seems so simple. We talk so lightly about prayer, but talking about prayer is so different than praying. We can talk about praying and still not pray. But the Bible says that the very first thing that Jesus chose to do when he knew that Peter was in trouble, he said, I prayed for thee. See, Pastor, I've got a Christian friend, and I fear that they're heading down the wrong path. How can I help? You can pray for them. And I'm not talking about some passing little diddly. I'm talking about getting down on your face and crying out to God and say, God, I'm worried about, worried about her. And there was a time that they loved the Lord. And that time's passed because they're kind of tolerating God. They're tolerating the word of God and the house of God. I'm saying that Jesus first prayed. Could I say before you even talk to that person, spend some time in prayer. 
could I say certainly before you talk to other people about what you see as trouble in that person? Pray. Very first thing that we learn from this text of Peter's problem, first thing we can do to help another Christian is pray for them. And uh, we know that uh, Luke 22, what it's painting for us, it's, it's painting a Christian who's in trouble. And our Lord, he said, I prayed for thee. Do you know, while we're here, I want you to notice what Jesus didn't pray for Peter for. You know what most times we'd pray? Lord, get Peter out of this mess. Lord, salvage Peter from the repercussions of what he just said. Lord, Peter is so self-confident. Help him to escape this Our Lord did not pray to take away the trouble. How often do you and I, when, we, uh, when we're aware of other Christians who are in some kind of trouble, isn't it so natural that we pray, Lord, get them out of the trouble? That's not what Jesus prayed. Look there at verse number 32. Verse 32, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I prayed, Peter, that through this trial that you're about to pass through, that it would not steal your faith in God, that it would not rob you of your faith in God, that you would still keep your eyes on the Lord, that you would still keep your heart set to please him, that's what Jesus prayed for. You know, and, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else. On our, on our Wednesday prayer list, we give a list of people that are sick, and how often we pray, Lord, make them better. <laughs> well, what if God brought that sickness to get their attention? Well, you don't want them just to get better until God's purpose has been accomplished Someone has lost their job. Lord, give them their job back. Maybe that's not what God wants to accomplish in this loss of job. Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And you know, God must have answered that prayer because 50 days later, Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and he's preaching. 3,000 people get saved. What, whatever Peter might have lost over these next 24, 48 hours, he didn't lose his faith because he is still preaching that faith in Acts chapter number 2. Pastor, how can I help another Christian that's in trouble? I say the very first thing that you can do is that you can pray for them. Preacher, what do I pray? You can pray that. Lord, help them not to lose their faith. How come not them not to lose their confidence in God? But there's a lot of other things. You could pray that God would show that Christian the seriousness of the danger that they're in. Some folks are just naively kind of going down life and figure that they got it all. They got, they got the tiger by the tail and they have no idea uh, when Elimelech was moving his wife and, and children from Bethlehem to Moab, he had no idea what he was about to do when Lot was moving his wife there into the city of Sodom. He had no idea what he was doing. First thing, I suppose you could pray beside, don't let them lose their faith, help them to see the serious danger that they're in. Secondly, you could pray that uh, they wouldn't try to blame somebody else when trouble comes. They take ownership of their own decisions. Pray that the ones that are in the right would be revealed and those that are in the wrong would be exposed. Pray that others would not follow that erring, that erring steps. How many Christians do we know that they took the wrong steps and, and other naive people followed their steps. You pray, Lord, don't, don't let someone else be swept up in this error. Uh, you could pray for a salvaging of that Christian from being a total casualty. Pray that others would be drawn closer to God through this. Pray that unbelievers would be saved, that God would get the glory. 
You could pray that God would give you the wisdom what to say and not to say. Well, I'm just going to tell Maybe that's not what God wants you to do. You could pray, Lord, tell me what to do or not to do. I'm saying, Pastor, I have a fellow Christian, a, a close friend, and I think they're in big trouble. How can I help them? First, you can pray for them. Could I give you a second thing? Look over there to John chapter number 20. John chapter 20. When I say pray for them, it, we're, we're not talking about one time, two minutes. We're talking about hundreds of times. Talking about on your face begging God. Lord, salvage their life. Don't let them go this way. John chapter 20 is a second Christian who is in trouble. This time it's not Peter. This time it's somebody else. Look there in John 20 and verse 24. The Bible says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This time we're not looking at a Peter in trouble. This time we're looking at a Thomas who's in trouble. Pastor, what's going on? We know that uh, our Lord was crucified and uh, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. We know that early that Sunday morning, some women came with spices to re-spice the dead body of Jesus Christ. And, and as they came that early morning, while it was still dark to the tomb, the stone is rolled away. And the soldiers are gone. And angels show up. And they're thinking somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, and, and yet these angels tell them, he is not here, he is risen. And then the angels give instructions to those women. You go tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet with them in Galilee. Now, a little bit of geography. Jesus was crucified and buried where? What city are we talking about? Where is he crucified? Jerusalem. That's in the south. Jerusalem, but Jesus, the angels said to the women, you go tell his disciples that Jesus is going to meet them today in Galilee. That's the north. You know, those women scrambled to find each of those disciples. And they said, listen, the, the angels said that Jesus is alive and he's going to meet with you in Galilee. You better start hoofing it. You better get going. We know in John chapter 20 that Jesus did meet with those apostles. Judas was not there. But look who verse 24 says also was not there that first resurrection Sunday evening. John chapter 20 and verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. We got a disciple that's in trouble. There's a Christian. This is one of the apostles. He wasn't at that Sunday night service, if you would. Now, you, you have to come up to two, one of two conclusions. Either the women did not find Thomas to tell them. I think we could rule that out, and I'll show you that in a moment. Or Thomas did hear. He just either didn't believe it, or he was too busy with something else. What could possibly be more important in the life of Thomas than to meet with a resurrected Christ? But what I'm saying to you is Thomas is in trouble. Thomas missed the service. <laughs> Thomas did not see the resurrected Christ. Now you say, well, preacher, how can you rule out that maybe the women didn't find Thomas to tell him because of the next verse, look at verse 25. John chapter 20 and verse 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. You know what Thomas would have said if they hadn't got him with the message? What? You saw the Lord? Why didn't someone tell me? If the women had failed to find Thomas and tell him, that's the kind of response Thomas would have given, but look at the response Thomas did give. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I uh, shall see in his hands the print of the nails, 
and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas has a problem in here. It, it's not that Thomas couldn't go where Jesus met with the other ten. It's that Thomas wouldn't. He, he just didn't see a priority. I got things to do. I got places to go. I got people to see. Thomas is in trouble. Well, what could the other disciples do to help Thomas? Well, let's look what they did. Look at verse 25. I know we read it quick. Let's take it a little slower. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. Now, this is going to take a little bit of deductive reasoning. Thomas didn't show up that Sunday night because he didn't want to. You know what the other ten could have done? They could have written him off. Loser. <laughs> I mean, something else is more important than seeing the resurrected Christ. Forget him. Junk him. But you know what? Verse 25 says they didn't do that. For them to have spoken to Thomas, that means they had to purposely go out of their way to find Thomas. And when they went out of their way to find Thomas, they said this to Thomas, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. I know that his response in the last part of, uh, part of verse 25 is still skepticism, but I'm showing you the second thing that you can do to help a Christian that is in trouble, and that is pull for them. Pull for them. They didn't try to push away Thomas. They didn't try to say, listen, buddy, you made the bad choice. Listen, Tom, you're through. <laughs> Listen, Thomas, you're finished. You aren't part of our crowd. You don't have the same values and priorities in your life. They could have pushed Thomas further away. Instead of doing that, they pulled for him. They went to find him. They went to tell him we saw the resurrected Christ by his answer in the last part of verse 25. He said, I don't believe it. He said, unless I put my finger in the nail prints and put my hand, I don't believe it. And I think they told him again. I think they went the next day and told him again. They endlessly tried to pull him back where he was supposed to be. You've got a Christian friend that's heading the wrong way down the path of life. Instead of saying, good riddance. The answer, first of all, is to pray for them. Get in your face and beg God that God will salvage their life. Beg God that God will help you to know what to say and what not to say and what to do and what not to do. Pray that God would not let somebody else follow the direction that they're going. Pray for them. But secondly, find them. Pull for them. Try to salvage them. Try to get them back to the place that they ought to be. I think these next seven days after Thomas didn't show up that first Sunday night, these disciples, they knew the count of 12 apostles was down to 11. They didn't want it to be down to 10. They didn't want it to be reduced yet one more. So they went out of their way to find that Christian that was in trouble to pull for them, to get them back. You say, preacher, probably wasted time. There's never wasted time. Look at the very next verse. Verse number 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. Now, we read verse 26 like it's just so natural. Do you know the first part of verse 26 is separate from the second part of verse 26? Do you know the eighth day they had been successful in getting Thomas back in with them? They didn't know that Jesus would show up that eighth day. They had just pulled and pulled and pulled to get Thomas back in. 
that he is back in with them, still skeptical, still questioning, still not sure that Jesus is like, but at least he's back in. Pastor, do you know that so-and-so comes to church occasionally, and do you know they don't believe anything that you say? Well, aren't you glad they're here? Pastor, don't you know that they're not even sure, they're not even sure about what Bible, they're not even sure it pays to serve the Lord. They're not sure of anything that we believe here. Aren't you glad that they're here? Folks, if they're not here, God can't speak to their heart through the preaching that's here. And God can't challenge their heart through the hymns that are at least if they're here. But it's going to take some pulling to get them here. Now, again, I say the first part of verse 26 is a great accomplishment because they succeeded in pulling Thomas back in. Now, he's not all the way in with his heart. Look at it again, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Stop. They got Thomas back in. Pastor, what can I do? How can I help another Christian in trouble? First of all, pray for them. And secondly, pull for them. Look at the last part of verse 26. Then came Jesus. The people in the first part of that verse didn't know that Jesus was going to show up. And, and folks, we don't know what service God is going to do a supernatural work in a heart. We don't know that. I know if we're not careful, it just becomes another service, another song, another... I know if we're not careful, it becomes like that. God did something supernatural to Thomas in verse 26 and 27 and 28 because they pulled him back in. Look at, look at verse 27. Then said he, Jesus, to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, be not, and be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, those disciples didn't know that verse 28 would be the result of just pulling Thomas back in. God has to do his part. But there is a part we can do. Preacher, how can I help? First of all, pray for them. Secondly, we have seen pull for them. We already looked for at Peter's denial. We already saw that. I said to you, and I, and I said it kind of quick like, I said that the angels told those women, go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. Could I read carefully Mark 16, 7? This is what the angels said. They say, go, go your way, tell the disciples, and Peter. The angels specifically mentioned Peter. Because Peter had denied the Lord three days before, and the angel said, you make sure to find Peter. Tell him to, God's in the business of reclaiming. God's in the business of restoring. Thank God that uh, they didn't want just ten. They were pushing to get all eleven. And I'm saying that we need to do that too. I give you a third thing. Look there in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter number 18. Pastor, how can I help another Christian in trouble? Matthew 18. First of all, pray for them. Just pray for them. Fervently, effectually pray that God does a supernatural work in their hearts. I trust that you're already doing that. Folks, there are a list of people related to all of us. Husbands, wives, children, parents, cousins, nephews, nieces. If we just put a list of those family members related to us, it wouldn't fit on one piece of paper. You already ought to be praying for them. 
Every time you see them, pull for them. Every time you're able, just one more attempt to get them back. Third thing, there in Matthew 18 and verse number 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him seven times? Now, I'm going to read into the text. You say, preacher, I think you read drunk. That's fair. Free country. When you preach, you can preach. Peter says, Lord, how oft should I forgive my brother? Now, to my understanding, Peter had many Christian brothers and sisters, yes. But Peter only had one flesh and blood brother, and that was who? Who was that? Andrew. Now, it's funny. Our take of Andrew is my take of it, is he was a perfect Christian. I mean, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist before he ever became a follower of Jesus Christ. We learned that in John 1. Uh, we know that Andrew, he, he went and right away after he met Christ, he went and got his brother Peter and he pulled Peter into the faith. That's Andrew. We know that Andrew was the one that found that little lad with five loaves and two fishes. That's Andrew. Every mention of Andrew Boy, it, it, it seems he's a perfect Christian if what we're reading right, where Peter says, Lord, how oft shall I forgive my brother? <laughs> if our read is right that it's Andrew. There was something behind the scenes that Andrew just kept doing the same thing, <laughs> the wrong thing. And if it was a Christian brother and not a physical brother, that the truth is still the same. But I, I, I think Peter came to the Lord and said, Lord, if I forgive my brother seven times, is that enough? Uh, I'm thinking, whoever the brother was, he just committed violation number eight. <laughs> I'm thinking that. So he said, Lord, if I forgive him seven times, is that enough? Well, look here at the verse again, Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21, Then came Peter to him, to Christ, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. Verse 22, look at what Jesus saith unto him. I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Folks, that's 490 times. Could I say third, third thing you can do to help another Christian is pardon them. Pardon them. Forgive them. You're not going to be able to help somebody if you have ill feelings in your heart. And this is true whether it's a family member, another Christian in the church. If there is bitterness and hatred in there for that person, you're never going to be able to help them. Preacher, I want to help them. Then you're going to have to forgive them for whatever they've done or whatever they didn't do but should do. You have to forgive. That will help you on the road to helping them. Pardon them. As much as our impression of Andrew was he was a model Christian, it would seem if this brother was Andrew that Peter didn't think he was a perfect Christian. And Peter was counting the number of times that he had forgiven his brother. And Peter was convinced, I don't think I should forgive him anymore. And our Lord said, if you want to help him, you have to forgive him. A preacher, I, I thought we only are required to forgive someone after they ask us to forgive it. Do you know technically that's true? The Bible says over there in Luke 17, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. In principle, we aren't required to forgive somebody until they ask us to forgive them. But could I say practically, you have to let it go. You just have to let it go because that person may never come to you to ask for forgiveness. And that will start a root of bitterness in your heart that will destroy you regardless of what the other person ever asks for forgiveness or not. I'm saying practically, if we wait to forgive them until after they've apologized, there's way too much uh, room for bitterness. 
Say, preacher, I would like to help another Christian in trouble. Third thing is pardon them. We know in 1 Corinthians 5, won't turn to it for sake of time, but there was a man that was committing fornication in the church. Paul said, here's how you have to deal with that. Paul basically said, you have to back away from fellowship with that guy. Do you know in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote to the church again about that man. Paul wrote this, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So the contrary wise, you ought to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. You have to forgive him so he can go forward. Paul continued, though, and he said, uh, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get advantage of us. Folks, we have to forgive people that have hurt us or hurt others, um, ignored us. Or we have to forgive them so that they can go forward. And we have to forgive them so we can go forward. Say, preacher, I'd like to help somebody that's in trouble. You have to forget. Listen, that prodigal son hurt his father. When he came back, he had a whole speech, all memorized, he was going to say to his dad. He never did get that whole speech out. His father had already forgiven him. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what to do. Well, they're gambling for his garments when Jesus said that. You'll help somebody by forgiving them. You've heard the name Rockefeller. You know, John D. Rockefeller, very wealthy man. He's credited for building the great Standard Oil Empire. One day, one of his executives made a mistake that cost the company $2 million. That's many years ago. And word of that man's enormous error quickly spread through the company. Finally, one of the other executives decided that he'd go to Rockefeller and talk about it. As he approached Rockefeller's desk, Rockefeller looked up from the piece of paper he was writing and the other executive said, I guess you've heard about the $2 million mistake our friend has made. And Rockefeller laid his pen down. And he said, I've been sitting here listing all of that friend's good qualities. And I've discovered that in the past he has earned for us multiple more times the amount that he lost this week. His good points far outweigh this human error. So I think we ought to forgive him. <laughs> Whoever's hurt you, if you did a list of all the blessings that they have been in your life, surely those outweigh one statement, one slight. One bad choice. Pastor, how can I help them? Pardon them. I give you the last. I'm done with this. Back there in 2 John 10. That's where we started this morning. 2 John verse 10. 2 John and verse 10. John is writing to this unnamed Christian woman. And he says to her, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's be. We understand the background. This woman was so hospitable that she was opening her door to anybody and everybody. And, and her nephews and nieces at that other church began worrying about this aunt. And as they were worrying about this aunt, they got concerned that she is going to get trapped that she is going to get sidelined, that she is going to get messed up. They were genuinely concerned because they could see an aunt was about to get into trouble. What did they do? If what I said when I started is true, they prayed. Lord, we need somebody else that's closer to the situation. 
that we can summon their help to speak to our aunt. And that's why when John came preaching through their church, they sat down, listen, they didn't sit down with everybody in their church. It, it doesn't help to advertise somebody else's problems, or at least problems you see. It doesn't help to advertise. That's, that's called gossip. But when you notice something that's happening in another Christian's life, you could help them by bringing it to the attention of somebody in their life that they respect, somebody in their life that they'll listen to. Many times it'll be a parent. But sometimes people lose respect for their parent. Many times it'll be a pastor or some Christian leader. Sometimes people lose respect for a pastor and Christian leader. I'm saying the very fourth thing, if you'd write this down, preacher, how can I help another Christian in trouble? And the last one is petition for them. Petition for them. Find somebody else in their life that they will listen to and uh, seek to sign them up to help. Keep your end there in Second John. Preacher, did that kind of thing happen any other place in the Bible? Would you look over there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1? 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Do you know that one of the reasons that Paul wrote this book of Corinthians was because there was somebody in that Corinthian church that communicated with Paul, said, Paul, I know that you started this church a number of years ago, but there's something going on that I think that you need to address. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look there if you would in verse number 10. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul wrote, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Apparently they weren't. And that there be no divisions among you. Apparently there were divisions. But that you perfectly be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now look at verse 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. You know what? I don't think Chloe was too pleased with that verse. <laughs> you know what Paul said? Chloe gave me the heads up. That in the church there are problems. You know what Paul did with that information? Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Not only did somebody in that church, maybe it was Chloe that wrote it all, not only did somebody in that church give the heads up on the division, look there in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. The Bible says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. Somebody else wrote to Paul and said, Paul, I don't know if you're aware, but this is what... The people in the Corinthian church listened to Paul. Pastor, I have a Christian friend that's, I think, in big trouble. How can I help them? First, you can pray for them. Fervently pray. Secondly, you can pull for them. Third, you can pardon them. Just forgive them. Fourth, you can petition for them. There might be somebody else in their life that they will, maybe they won't listen to you. But they listen to some. It, again, it, it might be a parent. It, it might be a pastor. It might be a precious Christian friend. Why don't you petition to get them on board to help? That's what these nieces and nephews in Second John did. Imagine the people get could be salvaged if we tried to help them. I think most of us are familiar with Fanny Crosby's hymn. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Do you know, when I sing that song, I always picture that song as a song in rescuing lost people. But you know, as I looked at that hymn this week, maybe it's talking about more than just rescuing lost people. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. 
weep or the erring one. Well, I don't think that's a lost person. I think that's a saved person who's taken the wrong path. Weep or the erring one, lift up the fallen. That's Paul for them. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save, though they are slighting him, though they are slighting him, still he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. So they're already a child of God. They just need to repent. Waiting the penitent child to receive, plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. This song is not just talking about lost people getting saved. This song is talking about saved people who have begun to take steps the wrong way. And your grace with those people, your prayers for those, your pull for those people, buried that grace can restore, touched by a loving heart. Folks, that's our heart, touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness. Chords that are broken will vibrate once more. I won't do it, but this is James' instrument. I'll be ever so delicate. But if one of those strings broke, well, you might, you know, I might look at that and say, well, I'll just toss that thing. It can be fixed. This instrument can play beautiful music again. It just takes some tenderness. It takes some kindness. And I think this nie these nieces and nephews in 2 John, I think that they so much admired their aunt, verse 1. But they got very concerned, and rightfully so, that she was so kind that she was going to take into her house a heretic that was going to mess her up and make her a casualty. And they didn't tell everybody in their church about this. They, they prayed, God, give us somebody that has some clout in her life. That's why when John showed up to preach at their church, they said, could we have just a few minutes? And when John heard it, John responsibly and carefully picked out a pen and a quill and a paper and a parchment, and he began to write this. And, and I don't know if she ever found out that it was her nieces and her nephews that set John on the case, if her heart was right with God, it wouldn't even have mattered. To preacher, my Christian life is going fine. Good for you. God bless you for it. But there are others that are close to us, and it's not going fine. You know, the very first thing is, Lord, would you give me a heart that cares for somebody that's not Lord start with a heart that can help me and Lord help me as I pray for them Lord help me as I pardon them help me as I pull for Lord help me